Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done, and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment, before the monsters came, humanoids from the deep dive welcome to the podcast humanoids from the deep dive where we dig deep into the meanings and contexts of your favorite monsters and monster movies each episode will see guests and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore today's episode we're going to be covering the classic story of dr jekyll and mr hyde through examining its myriad adaptations most poignantly including two Hammer Horror classics, The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Fans of the show can find us on Spotify, Google, iTunes, and Podbean. Also follow us on Twitter at HFTDeepDive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm a writer for Forbes, Looper, and Nightmare on Film Street on genre film, with bylines all over the place, and I've co-edited two books on Monster Media, Alien Philosophy and Stranger Things in Philosophy, uh, as well as having written book chapters on everything from Frankenstein, Hell, The Devil, Jurassic Park. If it's nerdy and if it's about monsters, I love it and I've probably written about it. So I'd like to take a moment too to introduce our co-host for this episode. Michael Vaughn is the author of The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema. He also runs the website The Video Attic where you can find reviews and exclusive interviews. Uh, You can find that at videoattic.com. And uh, Luna Minwi is a horror addict with a deep appreciation for the horrific, the monstrous, and the human experience. Her work as an advocate for marginalized groups has given her a greater appreciation for the complexity of the monster's role in horror. So thank you both for stopping by to uh, guest host this episode. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, and then I'm very pleased to introduce our special guest for this episode. Uh, Chris Vanderkay is an author and screenwriter, professor of screenwriting, staff writer at Council of Zoom, and a lifetime devotee of the film Pontypool. Thank you very much for joining us, Chris. I am delighted to be here with this esteemed panel. <laughs> hey, and this this episode, this entire episode was Chris's pitch. And he was like, hey, uh, I love your show. I would love to do, uh, you know, kind of join you guys for an episode. And we, we chatted about how he wanted to do this one. And I thought it was a great idea. So um, this is going to be a blast. Agreed. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's a great suggestion. Yeah, I'm stoked. Uh, so what what I'm going to do first is is there have been so many adaptations uh, of of this material before, uh, and and that doesn't even include all the indirect adaptations. Like, um, I mean, we'll we'll get into this in the context, but there's so many characters that were kind of inspired by this that aren't an adaptation that um, we'll probably go all over the place with with different references and with with adaptations that strike us the best but i'll just do uh first a general plot summary for for two of them the hammer whore entries the two faces of dr jekyll and dr jekyll and sister hyde so for the folks at home general plot summaries uh these adaptations are based off the 80 1886 gothic novella by robert louis stevenson uh called the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde and Really briefly, we'll have plenty of time. That one sees Dr. Jekyll taking serums to indulge his darker side, which ends up transforming him into an entirely different person in the character of Mr. Hyde, 
who's who's just more aggressive, shadier, etc. And Jekyll's motivation in taking that serum was to indulge his darker tendencies and explore the dual moral nature of man in in the in the novel's words. And then that saw, and we'll get into this a little bit more, a ton of adaptations in cinematic history. In the two faces of Dr. Jekyll, which is 1960, that sees a sort of like bland, milquetoast Dr. Jekyll creating a chemical potion, which he hopes will help him discover more aspects about the human mind. He tests it on himself as mad scientists in these sorts of things are known to do, which transforms him into Mr. Edward Hyde, who's a young, handsome, charismatic, also, fun fact, completely sociopathic, mm-hmm. uh, separate individual. And then as Hyde's villainy escalates, he frames Dr. Jekyll, sets up this harrowing conclusion, which we might get to. I won't spoil anything now. And then, so that that came out in 1960. And then in 71, Hammer came out with a, a sort of a, a gender-flipped adaptation in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Uh, and that flips the script in a couple of ways. So in, in that entry, and by, and by the way, have all of you had a chance to see that one? Yeah. Yeah. I, I did. I'm going to, I will be the first to admit it was over a decade ago that I saw it. So I'm a little rusty, but I do recall. No worries. Because, you know, as we're talking about this, there have been so many good adaptations that there's just so many ways we can slice this topic. There's going to be a lot uh, that we can kind of work with uh, in terms of understanding it. So in, in this one, it's strange because Jekyll is experimenting with female hormones in the search for an elixir of life. And so mixing the hormones into a serum and drinking it changes the male Dr. Jekyll into the female and evil uh, Edwina Hyde. Jekyll moves from extracting, you know, quote unquote, female hormones from corpses to starting to, to preying on sex workers in the area and killing women. And uh, in the, as that process continues, Hyde becomes increasingly dominant and she's definitely the more murderous of the two and more aggressive of the two and they struggle for control as as is a common theme in most of these adaptations so i just want to take a minute first and and, um just kind of give everyone the floor to talk about their uh impressions of and reviews of uh these films and if you also have a favorite that we haven't even talked about you could mention that too um does that sound good to everybody Yeah. yeah sounds good fantastic um chris as as our guest would you like to start sure yeah yeah um uh, I will I will speak more to the two faces of Doctor Jekyll than uh, Sister Hyde, mostly because that one uh, I saw yesterday. Perfect. So I can remember it a little better. Um, but the, uh, before even getting into two faces, one of the things I thought was most interesting, I guess, about what you would describe as the Jekyll and Hyde mythos overall, is I think it, it it's mm-hmm. an interesting timing situation when that story came out, and kind of what I feel like at least it it sort of represents because we're talking about sort of the end of the eighteen hundreds. Um, we're talking about um, technology and science finally sort of working their way into society in a, in a very large way to the degree that things are getting explained that used to be part of religion and uh, mythology and, you know, uh, superstition are now being explained by science. And I think it's interesting because whether Robert Louis Stevenson did this on purpose or not, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in some ways feels like a scientist's answer to the questions of sin and demon possession in some ways like it's him bridging the gap between these old stories about someone who's possessed by an evil that is not them but still looks like them still has their shape and 
sort of also the twin idea of the good person being drawn to the darkness, wanting to do something that they probably know they shouldn't be tampering with. And so I just thought it was interesting that, you know, what would we say, the late 1880s when it came out, 1890, you know, like right around the time when all of that is changing in society, that this story in mm-hmm. some ways perfectly encapsulates that shift um, from the religious to the to the scientific or rational, whatever you want to call it. So I thought that was one thing that I found particularly interesting. Um, but for the, the the thing that really caught me in um, two faces of, of Dr. Jekyll was, first of all, I thought it was a fun spin that um, Jekyll is the handsome one that can go about in society, even though he's the sociopath. And it's sort of the, uh, the kind of ugly, not very good at uh, getting along with people scientist that's like the quote unquote normal guy. I thought that was a fun twist on the expectation because so many adaptations have done Mr. Hyde is the ugly monster. And so I liked that reversal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think, and it, it's funny, and, and perhaps as we go through the um, the history of Jekyll and Hyde stories, one of the things I always find that's so funny is that even though Hyde is technically a villain, very rarely does he do stuff in movies that that is like beyond the pale in the sense of, for all of us who, here who watch horror movies, a lot of the, t- the stuff that, uh, that Hyde is doing is really not even as bad as most other horror movie villains are. And I wonder if it has something to do more with these movies tending to be critiques on the strictures of society more than it is about the dark heart of humanity because so much of that movie is i mean i I think there's literally a line where where this woman says she can't possibly not go to a party because she wouldn't dream of ruining the lady's table like the setting because one person would be missing and that's literally like something that could destroy someone in society you know if you plan for a party and one Mm -hmm. person didn't show up you know so I, i think it's funny because these movies yes while they do have a bad guy at the center of it Hyde mostly just sort of wants to blow off some steam. He wants to have sex and he wants to watch dudes beat the crap out of each other. That's pretty much all he spent his money on. Whereas like what we're actually seeing in this movie is how deadening and horrifying the strictures of a repressive society tend to be on people. And I think that's a really interesting parallel that I'm curious as society becomes less strict than it was at that time. Does it change the nature of how we tell the Jekyll and Hyde story? Oh, I really look forward to, to digging into those themes as we get along. Um, I, I think it's so, uh, well, first of all, uh, I would, it just makes me think I would love to do like a comedic script adaptation. Uh, this is me verbal copywriting it where someone turns into Hyde, but he's not even that bad a guy, just as random stuff, like ripping the tags off mattresses. Like, <laughs> it's like, I hate the strictures of society. You know what? Breaking the law, breaking the law. <laughs> that, that's well, really funny. They did like a comedy spin on that. Um, it was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde together again. Do you, does mm-hmm. anyone else yeah, recall Jekyll and Hyde one? together uh, again. What year was that? I haven't, I, I think I might, I mean, it's was pretty bad. I don't even think I finished it. Um, I own it because it was a double feature with student bodies, like one of my all time favorite movies. So, oh, that's yeah. Funny. I actually watching uh, this movie and then it's funny what Mike just said. It, it I thought, um, and I don't even know if it's fully comedic or if it just starts comedic and then can go to someone strange, somewhere strange, which is like, what if you did an inverse Jekyll and Hyde where like your Jekyll was a sort of a, you know, reckless fly by night sort of, you know, let's say like a rock star, you know, where he's he could do whatever he wants and he can leave awake in his trail and it doesn't matter. But like, what if he had a Hyde mm-hmm. that was <laughs> like a really puritanical, super nice guy that was horrified at like a kindly like British gent who's like, oh no, I couldn't do that. That would be rude. Right. And like, 
Well, think of the havoc he would wreak on that guy's life, though. You know, like the rock star wakes up in the morning and it turns out that the prostitute he was sleeping with, his other identity proposed to, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, he doesn't want to live in sin, you know. So, uh, like, you could play a lot of uh, fun tropes against the uh, the expected uh, framework, you know, by having the puritanical guy is the one that's wreaking havoc in the night. And then, like, you know, the... Uh, the, the the boozer the pill popper the rock yeah, star yeah. has to clean up after his quote-unquote mess yeah he's just like like oh well what, what did i spend all my money on last night did i buy a tiger or something like <laughs> and then he just finds like a note on the mirror like like i paid for all the things you broke yesterday <laughs> yeah i started a foundation to help people get uh hair lips removed you know again <laughs> Some, like, yeah wait, something actually thoughtful <laughs> yeah uh well so what what um uh no i i think those are some fascinating uh themes that we can talk about but chris i I do want to ask you real quick what would your review out of five be if you had to give stars for the two faces so for two faces i would actually go really i I was um i would give it a a high i would probably say four four and a half i was Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things i loved was that christopher lee got to play sort of like uh a, a, a layabout but not really a villain so much as just sort of he's not even really an anti hero he's just kind of a dude living off of some other dude's wife but like not super bad in the scheme of things and it's fun because you have this expectation of who christopher lee is given how many great villains he's played mm-hmm. it's kind of fun to watch him play you know the the um the lovable scoundrel you know yeah he's he's predominantly just kind of a kind of a dick that's about yeah. <laughs> the main difference um oh, thank you for that uh mike what about you what are your thoughts on the on the two so for um, Two Faces, um, I actually um, thought it was great. Um, uh, you know, echoing what Chris said, I, I really like the subversion of um, like the themes and tropes, especially like, um, you know, the uh, handsome non-monster um, Jack or a Hyde. And uh, yeah, I thought it was... Uh, really well photographed um jack mm-hmm. asher um was the dp but he also did stuff like curse of frankenstein and like the horror of dracula some like really great stuff mm-hmm. um you know it's i also kind of liked how this movie like pushed a lot of um boundaries as far as like drug use and you know obviously um this was like the 60s so they could they could push um like sex and stuff a little more than Mm -hmm. they could in the earlier adaptations um and you know another note of mine is like christopher lee is always a win so Mm -hmm. you know um and yeah and and i i really like sister hyde um i don't think it's as good but i think it's interesting enough i i like the birkin hair um like adding them into the mix and adding um, mm-hmm. like the that Hyde is actually Jack the Ripper. I think they kind of mm-hmm. do that angle. And, and, and again, you know, they, they um, tackle that theme of like moral and ethics. Like, you know, one character just spells it out and says, you know, you got to do bad things to do good. And, you know, that's always going to be an interesting thematic thing to mm-hmm. hang your, to hang your movie on. So yeah, I think both are pretty good. Um, if I had to rate, I would say I would rate Two Faces probably like a four out of five and probably like Sister mm-hmm. like a three. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I would also say, just because he said something that, that struck me, I thought was interesting about um, 
Uh, I mean, it, years ago, I guess I would have seen it before this show even existed, but it feels like uh, Sister Hyde maybe was influential on the creation of Penny Dreadful because it does that thing I love, which is to take real things from actual um, English history or British history and fold them into horror narratives so that they can comment on, on them in interesting ways. And they kind of did that with both, like you said, Burke and Hare and, um, and the uh, Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. And, and the series did the same thing, although they obviously also crossed it over into other horror stories, you know, so they were all in a, in a self-contained world, but then also s- sort of set it in a specific London you know, where things that were actually happening, like the Grand Guignol Theater and stuff like that, all folded into the actual, um, you know, fictional story that they were telling as well. Yeah, I feel like it might uh, have probably influenced some of the the more stories as well, because, um, you know, he has uh, you have his take on Jack the Ripper and From Hell. Um, didn't he do the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it does kind of something that that Penny Dreadful also does, where it takes this sort of amalgamation of characters, but it also adds some historical aspects to feel it. It does feel like it's probably pretty influential. And I I did think that was a very novel way to approach the material in, you know, for 71, especially Mm. wonderful. Uh, Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, Luna, what's your, uh, what's your take? So I, um, I came at this as a, a, reader really so I've read the story many times and I hadn't actually mm-hmm. sat down to watch the Hammer Hyde films uh with this much attention uh until now and it, I find it fascinating mm-hmm. that I did not realize that the two faces of Dr. Jekyll that is where all of these subsequent versions get most of their themes I mean the the story the book is I mean mm-hmm. it's short. There's not that much going on. There's no like love interest happening, um, mm-hmm. and the two faces of Doctor Jekyll really flesh out all of the things that we've been talking about. I mean, I wrote down drug, sex, and fighting pits. Um, I mean that's <laughs> basically you know this hide this version of hide uh, rather than just caning uh, Sir Carew. I think was the character in the book. Um, so I, I thought I was just fascinated by that. Um, and so I really enjoyed the two faces of Dr. Jekyll. I would give it a four out of five. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I absolutely agree that this, both the book and um, the two faces really brings that shift from to scientific explanations of previously thought supernatural happenings or um, sinful happenings uh, really out in the light as you know, when I was in my late teens reading um, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I always saw the massive theme of internalized homophobia in it. Um, Mm. and watching the two faces of, of Dr. Jekyll, it's not necessarily, um, the theme is still there, but it's, it's not so much, um, homophobia specifically, but then I watched, uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and I was like, Oh boy. Oh, Oh boy. There it is. (laughs) That came back. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I was kind of shocked watching that film. Obviously I, I still think it it has some really interesting storytelling. I really appreciated um, the historical context. Um, 
And it's really just saying the quiet part out loud uh, the whole time, screaming it, really. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, while it did have interesting storytelling, as I mentioned, I it, I don't think it was as good of a story, um, putting aside all of my feelings. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, um, but of course, the if I have to rate the entire film, I, I'd say it's like a two- yeah. Fair. Okay. Thank you so much. For me, it's it's interesting because so like many, I I read the novella uh, in high school at first, and then it kind of stuck with me. You get a sense for it, and it is a much simpler plot. Yeah, there's the romantic subplots and some of Hyde's more um, norm breaking, I guess you could say, aspects do come from the later cinematic adaptations, <laughs> uh, and then my reengagement with the character was more indirectly through, you know, when I was growing up comic books, basically in, uh, cause as what we'll get to in the context, the high Jekyll and Hyde character influenced indirectly. A lot of things like directly influenced the character, of the incredible Hulk. If you're watching the incredible Hulk on screen, you're watching a Jekyll and Hyde adaptation, mm-hmm. uh, the league of extraordinary gentlemen, which is its own riff on the material, but that one being kind of direct in a loose way. Um, and then like a two face in the Batman mythos is also kind of influenced by this Jekyll and Hyde dynamic of two halves of the self. And then one of them is, is, is the darker, more like the id. Absolutely. Or an extreme id, I guess you could say. Uh, I think you could even go so far as to extrapolate that the superhero mythos overall is kind of influenced by Jekyll and Hyde. mm -hmm. The idea that people are operating at all times with dual identities that have to keep track of what they can and can't do when they are behaving as that identity. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. And your and your villains are are more the Jekyll Hyde dynamic in the sense that like they're the self and then they're the id. Um mm-hmm. like a negative id. And for superheroes, it's more like, well now I'm gonna put the mask on and be the hero that that my heart makes me be with these powers. Uh I can totally see that. And so like I love this character and the dynamic and I hadn't seen any of the direct cinematic adaptations until much more recently. So Two Faces, for me, is a pretty strong retelling of the Jekyll and Hyde dynamic. I love the performances. Like you said, Mike, the um, the cinematography is, is, you know, pretty smart. It's pretty well executed. It's, it's a lovely film, especially if you have a good transfer of it. It, it really kind of hits home some of the themes of the novella where it's about and kind of like norm breaking in this sort of uh, tension ridden society that's very restrictive. And it's since that like what a lot of what Hyde does and he takes a little far in some instances because it's horror is he's breaking norms in a time when norms are really easy to break. And so I love how it interprets that character for, for the 1960s mores and uh, I'd probably give it a four out of five. Uh, I think it really kind of stands up to a modern viewing. Sister Hyde, uh, I don't think stands up as well. I, mm. I think that it has some, uh, it, it does like a novel thing in sort of gender flipping the Hyde character. But I think that as we will, I'm sure get into, adds some complications in terms of how well uh, it stands up today. You know, mm-hmm. um, the one thing that I do like about it is that I like that it kind of makes Jekyll kind of villainous from the drop. 
you know like mm. jekyll's doing shady shit oh yeah before hyde is even in the picture so if right. you take that character and then that character's like uninhibited dark side everybody go home and lock your doors because you're <laughs> fucked like yeah. And so I like that aspect of yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I mean that that's what really leans into me feeling like so many of these movies are more about our perception of right and wrong societally rather than morally. Is mm-hmm. because that character, like you said, was doing shady stuff, but doing it under cover of night or secret, you know, not telling other people about it, you know, sort of I guess you'd say right. keeping it close to the chest. And that that can only be because the characters aren't all that different. The only the only difference is that one is willing to pretend to operate within the artifice of the social system and one is not, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Right. And I was just going to say, just before you guys can dive into it, I, I also think it's interesting because it's also one of the only movies where they have two different people play Jekyll and Hyde. Almost always the actor wants to be able to take on the delightful challenge of playing both evil sides of the psyche. And this is, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a circumstance, obviously of the time, Um, that they would not have, they would never have hired a man or a woman and had them play both genders. Um, In fact, honestly, I don't know that they would do it today either for for what that might say or or how insensitive it could come across as, but it's one of the only times in which they didn't just have the same actor with some sort of prosthesis or difference in their performance to play the other side of the personality. Yeah, yeah. So I I think that um, it... uh... It's an interesting one for me, but I'd probably give it about a three out of five uh, because I don't think it totally thematically holds up as well. And I don't think it's as innovative as Two Faces, Mm. Uh, but it's still worth watching, at least. Uh, But we can talk about its problems (laughs) as as we move along. So I would give uh, Two Faces four stars. I think it holds up. Uh, And then uh, Sister Hyde, I would give... Just like a, a, a very eh, three out of five. <laughs> very, eh, not quite a meh, but like yeah. a. The sound eh. is really what sells that three out of five there. That's how we know how you truly feel. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's about that. Um, and, and, and the listeners at home, you couldn't see the face I was making because this isn't YouTube. But um, I had like a bit of a grimace, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it hurts me to have to give it a three, but I do. Um, absolutely. Well, thank you all for that. I think we're going to have such a good discussion. I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, I'll give, I'll give a little bit more context. We already kind of got into some of this, but, um, it's, it's interesting in the original novella. It's, it's fairly bare bones. Uh, you'll see a lot of the broad thematic resonance where it, where it's about social mores and that's kind of what defines what being immoral is in a historical context. So when, when once it comes out, that's what they're kind of dealing with conceptually. Mm. But a lot of the specificity of what Hyde does and why it's more villainous and why it's upsetting is evolved in all these successive film and stage adaptations over time. And so it's an interesting character because it is kind of, as, as you mentioned, Chris, as we've all been talking about, it's like a window into our contemporary era's moral concerns mm. almost. Where it's kind of a blank check to be like, well, okay, Hyde is the dark side of the self for Jekyll. So what would the dark side do? What would a really creepy dick do right now in this era? And so a lot of the specificity gets kind of evolved in these different interpretations and adaptations. Uh, I just want to say real quick that the character of Hyde, 
I found this out in doing research for the show, was inspired by Deacon William Brody of Scotland, who died in 1788. He was an exemplary citizen by day, but by night, he burgled uh, a whole bunch of upper-class homes. And so it was inspired kind of by that for Stevenson, and also born out of a series of dreams that he experienced. So he drove, he actually wrote the first draft of the novella in a few days. I heard that. I heard oh, he had like a fever or something while he was doing it too. Like he was not well while he was writing it. <laughs> it was a literal fever dream. <laughs> yeah. I was actually just going to ask, I know Luna, you said you have read the book. Have the, have you also, I've never read the book. And the reason I'm, I'm asking whether you have is there's, there's something I've always sort of gone back and forth with um, regarding the Jekyll and Hyde myth, which is, are they two separate beings is, or is it aspects of the same, like in the original source, basically? Because it seems like in all of the adaptations, what they're saying is it's not a separate personality. It's the darker side of the same personality. It's just using a new name. But I always wondered in the book, was Robert Louis Stevenson saying something a little bit more concrete, like that he had actually created a separate personality that wasn't him? Or was he actually saying, yeah, this is definitely me. I'm tapping into the darkness and I don't want to admit it about myself. So I'm calling him something else. I actually think that you are, you're right. Both of those things are right. (laughs) Um, Because in the book, it, it really is. It's this other personality. He doesn't, seem to he seems to know what happens when he is hide um but it is like this other being people don't recognize him he's smaller his physical stature is different his voice is different um that's interesting so there is a physical change as well yes yeah yeah absolutely like there the the um lawyer in the book at the beginning like runs into Hyde and he doesn't even recognize him but he's been uh friends with Jekyll for since they went to school together and stuff like that so it's um there is like a full physical difference the the I think even the servants in the house don't recognize that Hyde is the same person um right and then but in Jekyll's writings it lends more to that it's him but this other side that he wants to suppress that's my interpretation anyway yeah i was curious because you know i always wonder just because obviously everybody can do an adaptation saying whatever they want but i'm always curious about you know the original creator's intent and what they were getting at regardless of who else does an interpretation later where they feel like they're saying something else because i've also thought that the the jekyll and hyde story has a lot of similarities to the idea of the doppelganger, you know, mm. of the person out in society that looks like you and is wreaking havoc somewhat, quote unquote, in your name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it, there's an interesting dynamic to be had here that you don't get with the doppelganger, which is that when the other one is in action, you are unconscious, you're unable to do anything. So you can't have the same sort of, it's a psychological battle rather than a physical one, in the, like in, in the way that a doppelganger battles. Exactly. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And one of the things that I find so fascinating too is because, uh, it isn't an easy answer if it's like the dark side of the self or if it's a separate individual. Mm-hmm. And so my interpretation of the original novella is that it is a dark side of the self because that is kind of the question that Stevenson's intended to kind of explore. But in some of the subsequent film adaptations, and of course, as you mentioned, that they're entitled to take their own interpretation, 
but the the questions that it's asking change pretty dramatically depending on which interpretation you mm-hmm. take because a lot of people and 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 Mike you might be able to speak to this and uh we were just talking online before the show about some people have criticized Sister Hyde for being yeah. transphobic mm-hmm. and maybe one of you two can and speak a little bit more to that criticism but uh the thing that's interesting for me is it kind of depends on how you interpret the relation of Jekyll and Hyde. Because if Hyde is just the id, the darker id of Jekyll, so it is Jekyll, just like a different side of Jekyll at the wheel, then that kind of fuels the potential problematic implications for for transgender folks. But if it's an entirely different person, then that's it might have things to say about misogyny, but not necessarily have implications for a transgender experience. Yeah, well, my uh, my take on that is that in so when I said the internalized homophobia, like mm. it's everybody, it, it's society's interpretation of Hyde and Jekyll. They are the only ones that see two different people, but to the person, it's the same person. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's like a yes and for me. Um, I think that it's still thick with transphobia because if they, if Dr. Jekyll sees that as himself, then that's, that's the problem all along. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I see where you're getting with that. And I, I do think in some of the transformation scenes, I don't recall if it directly addresses it, but it seems like Jekyll looking in awe at his new body. So it seems like he's in there, you know? Yeah, yeah. I I don't think I ever got the sense in either of the films that that they didn't know Hyde and Jekyll, whether it was male, female, whatever, that they didn't know what was going on. It's everybody else that was like, oh, this is a different person. Oh, you're acting this way. Oh, you're a recluse now, whatever. But for the individual, they it's a battle within. And I think that's where this whole... Um, the good and evil discussion and this natural struggle within, I think even at the beginning of two faces, there's a quote that I didn't write down. <laughs> that was like um, discussing the nat- the natural struggle within and conflicting elements of personality. Uh, I just think it, it, it really is the same person. That's where these interesting psychological philosophical conversations stem from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also, I think there's something to be said about, you remember earlier I said the idea that probably the later into, uh, well, the later that a film gets made or the further into, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, as we continue to adapt this story, um, the more society shifts and therefore the more, I don't even want to say muddy because that's not necessarily right. There are some things that we always consider to be right or wrong, but the more complex the idea of dividing things into categories of a good Jekyll versus a, an evil Hyde becomes complicated. I, I think of, I don't know if I made up this uh, phrase, but um, I, it, it always rings true to me, which is that the only thing worse uh, than today's bigot is, is yesterday's progressive, mm. um, mm-hmm. where yeah. like something from 25 years ago that thought it was being so high-minded and, and you know, tolerant or uh, open or, you know, welcoming just rings so terribly hollow to a society that has evolved past the point even that they thought that they were looking at you know their their utopian society in star trek wants everyone to be equal but sure loves uh treating women like objects whenever kirk wants Mm -hmm. them to be you Mm -hmm. know so like 
it's interesting to look at this story from that perspective as well, especially with Sister Hyde, because what they what was probably looked at as um, you know not just shocking, but I would assume that from the filmmakers probably progressive for its time in the conversation that it was having, and it certainly was for its time progressive in the conversation it was having, rings terribly true and uncomfortable now, mm-hmm. because the people making it were not the ones that would have understood the true nature of what something like that actually, what that experience was like, you know? So even though they were having the conversations, they were probably the wrong ones to be having it, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think that it's, um, it's worth considering what was supposed to be the horrific aspect of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, through their eyes and what it what is the horrific aspect from our perspective now i i wonder if the horror was that this woman was taking over um mm-hmm. and that yes the the killing of the women and killing of sex workers obviously that's horrific but barely compared to <laughs> barely then compared to what we consider now um because of their line of work and and then the ending like is that the horror that there was a man and a woman in the same body in that case then yeah all my opinions are can still strong through today's standards you know yeah what what do you think yeah no that's a that's a really it's a really solid point and, and i think um a, a, a film made now could interestingly still take place in the same period, but could be, I feel like you could, you could have this story still be horrifying to certain people of the era, if you said it in that era, but having it take place now, you could, I think, very strongly show the problem is the society looking at this person that's having a struggle and not make either side of that equation the villain, but make society the villain in the same way that the first, the two faces of Dr. Jekyll really kind of made society the villain because the society was the one that was holding uh, quote unquote Jekyll's feet to the fire, right? You know, like making him abide by all these rules and Hyde was the thing that freed him. In a way, there's a really powerful statement to be made there if you took the same story from Sister Hyde and made society the villain as opposed to Hyde himself. Or Absolutely. Herself, I would throw my money at that yeah i feel like that could be great like (laughs) because i i feel like and you would have to have the right people behind the wheel but you could definitely have a lot to say about gender and uh about societal norms and oppression but the problem is you would have to avoid something this films does which is associate the female side with villainy and it kind of lets Mm. jekyll off the hook despite the fact that he's bad like he's not a good guy even almost right suddenly he's the victim right exactly and so like if you avoid those pitfalls i feel like you could break more ground Hmm. sounds like we just need a new version of this film every five years yeah so it's constantly (laughs) up to date (laughs) well i mean one of the great things about jekyll and hyde really is that much like zombies and vampires it's an archetype now at this point almost more than a specific narrative in the sense that I mean, I, I'll be honest, I haven't seen an actual Jekyll and Hyde, like a straight adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde, uh, like a new one. There have been a bunch made in the last 20 years, but I couldn't tell you one that I saw that was just the straight Jekyll and Hyde adaptation. Right. You know, I've seen League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I've seen the TV show Jekyll, which was great, starring James mm-hmm. Nesbitt. But all of them are offshoots that take the central premise or the central conceit, that solid central conceit, and do something entirely different with it. And so... I kind of agree. Like if we looked at Jekyll and Hyde as more of it's like a movie monster in the way that the Gill Man is or that the uh, that a vampire is or that a zombie is and we make it a movie monster as opposed to one character 
whose story we've sort of become trapped right. inside of using those same tropes, that would absolutely free us up for it to be about a lot more things than just what it is currently. Right. Absolutely. Because I mean, if you look about it, it is that that a lot of the subsequent adaptations kind of presume that you already know that Jekyll is Hyde, mm-hmm. you know, uh, at this point, because it's reached that level of notoriety that like, so every time you see a Frankenstein, like if you see Jurassic Park, you're watching Frankenstein, you know, if you're watching any movie about a scientific creation gone awry, it's Frankenstein. If you watch Splice, it's Frankenstein in a way. But with Jekyll mm-hmm. and Hyde, if you're watching anything with with the, the struggle of different selves, some of which might be dangerous in oneself, or sometimes doppelgangers, but traditionally it's like, if you're watching Fight Club, you're watching Jekyll and Hyde. And mm-hmm. so it does, to acknowledge that does allow you to do, like you're saying, a lot of novel things with the plot. Well, it also opens you up to do the things that, I, one of the things I love about stories that have been around forever is that if we know all of the cliches of the story, it allows us to build an offshoot of that without having to explain the old cliche, right? Mm-hmm. So like when we were talking about a, a Jekyll and Hyde where we're where the Hyde is the the polite one, the great thing about that story is we can just start telling it. We don't have to explain why it's a reference to this mm-hmm. other one. We don't have to say why it's an inverse of the Jekyll and Hyde because we understand that myth so incredibly well that we don't have to explain to someone why this new one is an interesting offshoot that says something different about it. Because it's like, you know, it's almost like there's a certain level of psychic awareness that you have of certain things. Like somehow you're, when you're born into the world now, you know uh, the ending to Psycho, you know, like you don't get to see it new because somehow before you ever get to it, it sort of has become a thing that you become aware of. So you don't get to have that experience. It's kind of the same way with these old tropes and stories. Like everybody knows the mythos of the vampire. So when you do a twist on it or you do some clever reinvention of it, you don't have to explain the old thing. Where do you know the old thing? You can build on it with a new thing because it's already foundational in society, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Mike, I just wanted to, to mention, did, did you have anything to add about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I, I know that you have some, so... you have a lot of thoughts on this. Yeah, so I see I've I've been kind of grappling with how I want to kind of talk about Sister High because, you know, that's, um, you know, I'm speaking from a queer perspective, not a trans perspective, Um, you know, so I felt like it would be a little hypocritical to, you know, levy what I think the interpretation is but mm-hmm. um i will say that i and when i first saw it i never kind of got that uh impression but now obviously rewatching it it's like wow you know this is very problematic and, and you know i'm not defending the movie kind of i mean should have handled that uh better but you also have to kind of think about like what the creator intent was you know mm-hmm. was it um just simply to kind of do something interesting and different or you know was it kind of meant to kind of provoke these kind of discussions so i mean it's 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 really hard i mean it's one of those um so i'm a big fan of older movies Mm -hmm. uh for example and it's always a struggle because you know older movies there's a lot of yikes in in them (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting right now we're kind of grappling with the whole thing about how we deal with you know products movies uh, media that that's not aged well i'm always in the battle of 
I don't want to excuse like some of my favorite movies kind of have some very problematic elements. And, you know, part of me is like, do I throw this movie out and never watch it again? You know, do I try to maybe ignore that part of it and enjoy the rest? I mean, you know, it's something that I still kind of grapple with as a film lover but I, you know, but but as somebody that that very um, readily can point out that you know, yeah, that this has not aged well, and it's makes me uncomfortable to enjoy certain older movies. So I, I guess I kind of come with Sister High with that. I mean, it comes with it like with that baggage, and, and I don't know. I mean, it, like I said, it's something that um, you know I enjoy the movie. I don't enjoy that aspect. It's I think it's very valid to to read it as transphobic, and, and yeah, I mean again. Again, it, it's like I'm definitely not the the authority to, <laughs> yeah, because right. I don't come at it at you know as I said I, I I tackle it with a queer perspective, not not a trans perspective. So yeah, it's hopefully I'm not rambling. <laughs> that's that's kind of my issue too because I come at it as a person also myself who is not straight, but I also don't claim to understand the experience of transgender people uh, and that community. And so there are things that might not read in their implications as problematic to me as they would to a member of that community um, or things that I would miss and I would expect to miss things, you know? But it's also hard because in 1971, when this film came out, I mean, it surely doesn't hold up to today's lens, but I also kind of wonder with, as you mentioned, directorial intent, what conversations were they even having in Britain in 1971? I, I don't know. And so I don't know if they were even aware of those implications or if they maybe they were just playing like devil may care. I don't, whatever. I'm just making a horror film because I got this concept. Yeah. And again, it, it's like, I can't justify that it's definitely cringy. And, um, you know, viewing it decades ago, I look at it very differently now, obviously, I mean, being older and realizing these things. And, and again, you know, I don't want to invalidate anybody's um, perspective because, you know, I'm coming at it not as a trans person, but yeah, it, it's really complicated. I, I, th- I think all older media, like movies in general, or specifically, it, it's really hard. I mean, it, it's like some of my, like I, like I said, some of my favorite movies have very problematic things. And uh, like I said, I think we're kind of still trying to, to uh, figure out how we deal with um, media that's just uh, not relevant or just aged really badly. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I look forward to hearing about this in more detail on your new podcast, Mike's Yikes. Yeah. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it's just me. Yeah. yeah. It's just me awkwardly oh. rambling about things. It's, it's great. <laughs> You're like, I love it, but I hate it, but it's great, but it's yeah. terrible. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, and I honestly, like, I definitely um, sympathize with your perspective like I am also a lover of old films and it is Mm -hmm. tough sometimes to watch rewatch things and catch new problematic things that I didn't notice before and then I'm like ah well who am I yeah (laughs) yeah exactly like Mm -hmm. um there is you might know this movie because you said you're into older movies um it's called Mr. Blanding's Built His Dream House mm-hmm. do, you, do you guys know that oh no I don't know that uh, one. It, it's a really fun movie but they have an uh, a very stereotypical African-American made character and it, it's oh it just bothers me so much because 
Mm-hmm. I love the movie, but I wish that that wasn't. I mean, it's again, you have to do these mental gymnastics of, you know, can I still like this movie even though it's, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it really does feel like mental gymnastics. I think for me, you know, I can't speak to anyone's experience other than mine. And I just, you know, mm-hmm. I'm very aware of that. And even as a non-trans person, I'm deeply bothered um, just based on my values at this idea, both in um, Sister Hyde and The Two Faces. Like you have this quote unquote internalized sinful nature. It's not internalized. They're saying that there's this internal innate sinful nature within you. And the only answer is to destroy yourself if you can't get it under control, mm-hmm. um, yeah. there's no like seeking help. There's no other. I, and I, it's an old film, but it's not that old. Yeah. Like it's, it's just hard. I've, I've been really struggling with that the last few days as well. Just so what, what are you saying here? Like, what is the message if there is one? And if there wasn't one, is that considered tone deaf even in that time? I just have a lot of questions. Yeah. You know what else, you know what I think is interesting about it too, is that probably one of the reasons we're having this conversation more about this one than any of the other um, Jekyll and Hyde movies that have done gender swaps is because almost to the number, every single other one has, has been comedic. Um, Mm. It's almost always played for laughs, Mm -hmm. which is in in its own way, severely problematic because the idea of becoming a woman is inherently hilarious. But I mean, yeah, like the the some like it hot complications. Right, exactly. Or, you know, like, there's a Dr. Jekyll and Miss Hyde, I think, which was um, maybe Sean Young was in. And, you know, there's like the softcore sex ones where a guy turns into a woman. And like, so I feel like the reason that this one is, I don't want to say being taken to task here, but the reason that we're talking about this is because it's a quote unquote serious version of this horror story as opposed to playing it for laughs, which is can be offensive on its own, but not to the degree that we feel like we need to, you know, take it to the carpet because it was in some ways, because it was a comedy was always intended to be a bit offensive. And therefore, you know, right. where they're coming from. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is a different story because we right. don't... And the motivation, like, you right, know, the exactly. motivation. Mm-hmm. It's so, it's interesting to me too, because um, if you slice it one of two different ways, um, the way that it's offensive is different, you know, mm-hmm. because, so if Jekyll is Jekyll, just like the id part in now this woman's body, that has complications for its implications for transphobia and what it says about that experience. And if the villainy, and I think that's the way that the film should be read because he seems to be at least cognizant of the wheel the whole mm-hmm. time. But if you read it as it's literally a different personality, then that has complications with it's a, at the very least it's misogynistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so no matter which way you slice it, the film has hard conceptual problems. Yeah. Right. It's upsetting. Yeah. It's upsetting. Right. We just need but to establish what in which type way. of mad should I be? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think, um, and you, you, you escape a lot of that with, with two faces. I think it's interesting too, for sister Hyde, because I can see where the idea came from. I always like to imagine the pitch, you know, like, wait, why did, why is this a thing? You know? And I can see them being like, okay, so what if Jekyll takes this thing and 
it turns him not just into a different person, because we've done that a couple times, but what if it turns into dun 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 <laughs> a woman? And I can see that pitch and I can see why it sounded like a good idea in 1970, 1971, however long this took to get made. But it's like, oh, you should have also taken several steps through thinking of this first <laughs> before you like actually made it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it, I think of this all the time about, and this is not necessarily for me to say because, you know, Tony Todd makes his own decisions. He stars in whatever movies mm-hmm. he wants and he can say no. But there was a version of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that Tony Todd was in. And the, one of the conceits of the character of Jekyll and Hyde was that when he turned into Hyde, he was becoming Simeon. He was becoming like an ape creature. And I just remember thinking there is Mm. such a long and uncomfortable history of Mm -hmm. coded language around that, that this seems, even if Tony Todd was okay with it, this seems like the kind of thing that you guys should have thought about before you made this movie, you know? Yeah. It seems like there should have been like a writer's room moment where someone's like, okay, this is my pitch. And then someone just turns and looks at him like, no. Yeah. Just no. Shut shut that down. (laughs) That needs a hard no. Mm -hmm. It literally just took one person in the room. But of course, all those people were rich white dudes. So of course, that co- that that conversation never happened. On this week's episode of Mike's Yikes on Bikes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, this has got to be a thing. Um, no, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. I just looked this up really quick. And on the Blu-ray of this movie, they, they actually speak to the director and the actress, uh, Martine Beswick. Mm-hmm. Um, very lovely person. I actually got to meet her at a convention once. And the writer, I guess, um, is also on that commentary. So that would, that would be kind of interesting. I don't want to justify it because it's like, I'm not excusing it. It would just probably be interesting to see what, as we were saying, like creator intent, no, no matter how ill-advised that intent was. Right, right. Because I think like what was, because I also love old movies. I mean, there's a reason why. Uh, I like to do them on the show because I think there's still a lot of value in some of these older films that ask questions of an earlier era. And I find them so interesting, but it's hard because some of these things have elements that really make you cringe from a modern perspective, but in their, their era, those weren't necessarily even questions or they might've even been archaic, but they were trying to do better from the time period that they came from. This is not one of those movies where they were trying to really do something progressive. It was a straightforward horror film. Yeah. But it makes it so hard to watch because, because you know, then there's that criticism sometimes where it's like, oh, well, okay, I could see what you were trying to do. Now we know better and I cringe, but mm-hmm. I kind of give you a half pass. And I don't think this is that film, but it's definitely a line that I've had to take quite a few times. One of the things that sort of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't when you work in the horror genre, which is the horror genre, because it's not meant to make people feel warm and happy, they're allowed to talk about all kinds of things that are controversial. Um, And because of that, there have been many horror films that have been the first ones to comment on things no one else wants to talk about. And that's actually been great. Um, you know, I think that some of the most important conversations about abortion early on were happening in horror movies because no mainstream movies wanted to touch that with a 10 foot pole. And the unfortunate situation is that as a, as a rule, like we said, you know, progressivism ages poorly. Um, I think a horror film can have a solid intent and, uh, and be for its time forward thinking it can age poorly. And at the same time, I think, unfortunately, because it's a horror film, then people may often look at it as if it is, quote unquote, just a horror film, right? Mm-hmm. And then not give it the credit that there was 
you know, some attempt at uh, some uh, serious or high-minded situation uh, that they wanted to discuss and were just coding it or, you know, you know, creating it as a symbol, which is the easiest way to talk about anything in science fiction and horror is to, you know, put a new face on it. I think sometimes, we, I mean, we still do it to this day. Like nobody calls a movie that's going to get nominated for an Oscar a horror film because nobody thinks of horror films as Oscar worthy movies, you know, even though anybody who watches them with any kind of uh, seriousness or frequency knows that there are absolutely Oscar worthy movies that come out in the genre. It's just that it has such a reputation. I somehow you just absolutely captured why I love horror. And <laughs> <laughs> one, like I adore this genre because you can get your hands dirty. You can get your whole face dirty climbing into these muddy waters and these mucky, you know, conversations that are difficult to have in public spaces. Um, and they're conversations worth having. And even though you don't come out with a yes or no, there's no binary reaction. I think that mm -hmm. is important. So like when Mike, you were talking about earlier, like, in today's society, we're having a hard time understanding or deciding what we're going to do with problematic old media. This is where I, my personal feeling is that these films and works are important to understand the story and to prompt people um, to have intellectual arguments and help them form their perspective on these issues. Of course, new media need not <laughs> like being mm -hmm. made with in these same ways but um and i struggle with that too because then that means that people are still gonna have to watch this hor horrifically problematic stuff but it's like important for a conversation so then what do you do about it i don't know oh, yeah, but that's why i watch horror i kind of think that um to that point um i kind of liked what hbo did with gone with the wind where they put like some um context behind it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is, you know, a good step to go with some, uh, a how of, of how we kind of tackle these, these kind of movies. And, you know, uh, you know, it, it's good to have that important context because it kind of puts it for its place in time, you know, I mean, it's still not good, but, um, mm -hmm. kind of gives some important information to, to inform, like you said, a, a, a discussion Mm -hmm. I just have to say, I don't know if anybody else on the panel here is, is uh, does any teaching, but I'm I'm a screenwriting professor, and this is to me this kind of conversation is the way that I know that arts education has failed or that it barely even exists because as a as a screenwriting professor, as people as someone teaching people who want to write films for a living, I see constantly that people don't understand the idea that someone doing something in a movie is not an endorsement of that something, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's so hard to explain to them that you can have a character do something and you're not necessarily approving of it as much as you are showing it in a film. And the same goes for when you're screening a film. If I'm watching a movie from the 30s, I don't watch the movie and ask everyone to pretend that there weren't uncomfortable things. When the movie's over, we talk about the uncomfortable things because the goal, for me at least, of talking about a movie in the 30s is understanding what amazing things they were doing with the framework that they have and also what problematic things they were doing because that's the only way that you learn. Like mm -hmm. this, um, this weird need to hide um, problematic art. I'm not saying I think that it should be available to everyone, but I think that there should be some sense of like, you know, Disney burying horrible things that they did from World War II videos is, I mean, you know, animation and stuff like that is a problem because what we need to understand is that people 
that were creating things, they had problematic uh, opinions and those opinions made their way into that art. And if we just hide the stuff that has the most problematic issues, like the very bad ones, then we're not having a conversation about the way that it's portrayed in quieter ways in other art that hasn't been censored, right. you know? Like we can say the problematic uh, portrayal of uh, of Asian uh, people in Disney animated cartoons during World War II was horrifying. And so they hide them all. The thing is, there were problematic portrayals of all kinds of people in other cartoons that haven't been hidden because they're not quite as offensive. And that's still out there. And because we're not having that conversation, that continues to perpetrate. Yeah, like I, I, I found it so interesting that recent discussions over like, oh, yeah, so Disney is acknowledging that there are you know, people were surprised that Disney's acknowledging that there were racist caricatures in some of their classic films. I'm like, you never noticed there were problematic. <laughs> I think like you never you watch Dumbo and you're like, you see the scene with the crows and you're like, sounds legit. Moving on. Yes. <laughs> the character Jesus. literally named Jim Crow. His name is literally Jim Crow. I know. Like, I was like, like, this is ridiculous. Back in when I was like a teenager and teenagers are still stupid unless you listen to the show in which case i respect you but when i was a teenager teachers dumb as bricks and i knew that <laughs> yeah and, and that's what i mean about arts education like if it takes a warning from disney plus that there are offensive stereotypes in peter pan because otherwise you wouldn't have known that a song called what makes the red man red should be offensive like there's a bigger problem yeah. at work here than you think that disney is censoring your the things you're watching you right. know and, th and then one yeah. thing uh, i'm so glad that you mentioned it chris about uh a filmmaker might put something in a film that's not a tacit endorsement of the thing that's happening Mm -hmm. I have this conversation at least once a year with people about Scorsese movies because people, and it's a little better now, but there was a long period of time where people would watch things like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull and be like, oh, he's just this like macho filmmaker who writes about all these toxic men, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but he doesn't approve of their toxic characteristics just because he portrays it. <laughs> well, that would, yeah, it would be like saying, you know, oh, he obviously glorifies crime. It's like, have you not watched the last 20 minutes of any of his crime films? Right, like in every <laughs> single one of these movies, the toxic character ruins their lives and the lives of everyone around them as a consequence of their toxic masculine behaviors. Scorsese is one of the number one cinematic critics of toxic masculinity. He just does so by showing how if you're a toxic male in society, you ruin everything for everyone all the time. And sometimes you die. Like, yeah. No, and that's absolutely. like I said, that that goes all the way back to the um, to the education. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Luna. It, it goes all the way back to the idea of being able to watch a movie as something other than a portrayal of a narrative in which you agree with and, uh, you know, and endorse everything that has happened from every character in the story. Yeah. And that and, and that just goes back to my love of the genre that's kind of the point like uh, to me horror I, the, there are those in my family as there are probably in everyone's family that's like why are you watching this movie this is terrible <laughs> blah 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 it's so violent but this movie is addressing some of the darkest parts of society right. that none of y'all want to talk to me about so i'm gonna watch this movie and have my own thoughts <laughs> oh absolutely i've definitely been in like those rooms where i, I get people together and i'm like oh everyone we need to watch this movie because it's really good and then certain things happen on screen and then people look at you a little different <laughs> like mm -hmm. like you're just like oh this is good because man i just loved how that guy got cut like it's not yeah. like that <laughs> yeah. yeah i feel like you could take the two faces of dr jekyll and just like show it to people who don't like horror and then like every time 
the stuffy asshole comes on screen, just point at them and be like, that's you. That's why I watch these movies. <laughs> you are the problem. That's my new way to watch it now. <laughs> just but, accusingly pointing at characters and then giving them side eye every time one walks on screen. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I do kind of want to to move back a little bit because normally I, I formally shift to the deep dive period, but we've been kind of doing that the whole time because <laughs> this is such a thematically rich story in any adaptation, just implicit in the concept. Mm-hmm. But I do kind of want to revisit a little bit thinking about how it's always more of a commentary on social norms and what they mean for for an individual morality and how it's read than it is on anything else. And I think it's so fascinating because, you know, this this was made in the late 1800s. Uh, but even actually, even still then, you could have a, a version where, oh, well, someone's just like promiscuous and, oh my God, that's terrible. And there's this puritanical aspect to it. But if you were to make it now, it would have to be like, oh, this person killed a school bus full of kids. And that's how you show it's villainous because the line's been moved so much. And I just find that fascinating with what it means for what we consider to be like a person's id and their dark side. Well, I think you pointed out something interesting there, though, which is that I would argue there probably hasn't been a Hyde movie where Hyde has killed a bus school bus full of children. Because I think so much about what this genre is, is Hyde is only doing exaggerated versions of breaking the rules that we all think are stupid to begin with. Mm-hmm. The reason that Hyde is not a child murderer is because by and large, nobody thinks, God, you know what I'm really tired of is all these child murdering rules. You know what I mean? Like, we're not looking at society through the lens of, I would really like to be able to go out and do horrible things to innocent people, and these stupid laws are keeping me in place, you know? So I I think what he most reflects, Hyde, at least in most of the films that I've seen that they have him in, is he's not a monster he is um, he is like the id breaking free, mm-hmm. right? Like he's saying, I don't want to be constrained by the um, false mores of society. Not necessarily that I want to go out and be a terrible person. It's that I want to be who I am and I want to not be restricted by the laws that you've put in place that unreasonably or improperly um, make me do something I right. don't want to do. You know, like I think it's one of the reasons why Hyde is like he's only a villain in the sense that he's fighting against a system uh, in the same way that like, if this system didn't exist, I don't know that Hyde would because he wouldn't need to. Right. I will say not to like disagree with you, but like have uh, you guys have seen the, the 31 version of Jekyll and Hyde. I have not. Is that the Barrymore one? Um, no, that's the, oh, no. um, Oh, that's Frederick, like, yeah, that's Frederick Frederick yeah. Okay, no, I haven't seen that one. So that one's really interesting because um I actually rewatched the 31 and 41 just in case we, you know, we're going to talk about that. And it's a movie I've seen so many times, but it still shocks me because um Hyde in in this version is sadistic's not even the word. Like in a lot of adaptations he like takes a woman as like a companion. And um, he mentally and physically and ultimately kills her. And and it's one of these things I always interpreted as polite Victorian um, society. You didn't talk about um, domestic abuse and um, Mm -hmm. physical or emotional or psychological abuse. Um, Gaslighting, you know, in fact, comes from like the Victorian play. And uh, yeah, I mean, he uh, um, it's very I mean, it's it's very graphic to the point of uncomfortable especially this is pre-code so they they were allowed to get away with a little more in the 41 version he's still like this really abusive you know guy but it never kind of 
escalates where you actually see, you know, a lot of it's psychological torture, which I always thought was like the most sinister thing in the movie is how he just really messes with her mind as much as he does actually physically abuses her. So it's definitely, um, you know, in that version, he's kind of a monster in every kind of sense. One well, and also in um in two faces doesn't doesn't uh hide rape kitty it implies yeah oh yeah oh did he? oh i did not i did i actually did not catch that but now that you said that 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 was a pretty heavy implication that i kind of glossed over yeah because because i i watch this like a little my memory's a little fuzzy because i watched it a little bit ago and i i just w- rewatched sister hide but i if i remember right he rapes kitty and he totally kills a guy with a snake oh, oh the yeah. Lee character right yeah. so he does some Right. To be fair, we're fine with him killing him with a snake. That's not... Yeah. We're all on board with that. I felt bad for the snake. I mean, if you have a snake, who wouldn't kill a guy? Right. Just kidding. Listeners at home, I have killed no people. <laughs> that is kind of next level. I mean, I'm I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying that's next level Bond villainy. <laughs> that is true. Now, if he'd had a laser on his head, that would have been full on Bond, right? <laughs> Just to, well, yeah, well, yeah, I didn't mean to like derail um, what you were saying, Mike. Is it's more just like that sort of sexual violence aspect does actually because we haven't mentioned it before carry into two faces, and it is obviously a villainous thing that Hyde does. You know what? That's actually really interesting. In fact, all, I mean, all, I would argue, but both of the things that you said relate to sexual politics, and I think it's interesting. For me, it's always been weird that they decided that a Jekyll and Hyde story should ever have a romantic uh, element to it because. At worst, it's about abuse. And at best, it's about, like you said, gaslighting or, well, abuse of some kind, emotional or physical. You know, like, I mean, even Mary Riley is basically about a woman in a dangerous relationship with a violent man who luckily enough is only violent to other people. There's really no iteration of this story that has a romantic angle that is not deeply problematic in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But I mean, it's interesting because, you know, um, again, you know, this was a movie that I liked, you know, at a a younger age. And then, you know, when I um, got a little older, I started to realize and wake up to the fact that, you know, like this is kind of like an allegory for like um, maybe even like substance abuse, which to, you know, to uh, faces actually kind of has more explicitly because you I mean, back even pre-code days, you didn't see a lot of drug use. but, you know, I mean, somebody can, uh, you know, whether it's drinking drugs, you know, be a different person, you know, uh, abuse your spouse. So I always thought it was like this polite Victorian way of talking about these things. Like like we were talking about how horror can be um, a great way to convey these heavy topics without actually hitting it straight on. So I always kind of thought that the text and and some of the movie versions were kind of like tapping into like the uh, abuse that's going down across the street, but we don't talk about it because that's not uh, our business. That's not like in what what polite uh, society dictates, which I always think it's so interesting when, when, you know, like the setting is um, usually turn of the century London. So I I think it's so interesting too, because like, I think part of the reason just something I was, I was just thinking about why some of these infractions can get terrible, like mm-hmm. in the 31 and like in, in two faces and sister Hyde is when there is when they're being horror adaptations, they have to be transgressive in an extreme way in order to 
sell the genre versus in a more comedic adaptation, just like, oh, well, your head's operating. What are you going to do? You're going to get some. You're going to do all these other things that aren't actually villainous, even though they might the puritanical perspective be like but but to to escalate things to horrific level while then you're doing like the terrible stuff yeah it almost feels like the addition of these romantic subplots and it's like these women were added to like highlight the evil deeds of Hyde against another person and the easiest person to victimize would be a woman in the society in that society back then yeah, that's really interesting. And also, at the same time, it's it's too easy to, in a way, though, because like we don't answer for that in the way that we would other things. You know what I mean? Because that's an easy mark. It's a character you can throw in to victimize and then not have to address later, right? Because society themselves victimizes this character. So we, while we can, you know, scorn the character who's being so horrible towards or hide, we don't really, as a society at least care about that character Mm -hmm. and certainly the filmmakers don't care about those characters you know so i think in some ways well we use that as a shock tactic it's not necessarily meant to give us any i guess you would say um social connection to like that or being some responsibility for us to notice that and do something about it you know they it doesn't seem like it's taken Mm -hmm. seriously in that degree so i will say that um in the 41 version um so it is ingrid bergman that plays the um like the prostitute character that's kind of like the kind of the other side of the coin to um you know dr jekyll's fiance so like like i always thought that was kind of interesting that the two were kind of like a jekyll hide themselves but i think what's interesting in the in the 41 version of Hyde the screenwriters give her a little more agency which I think that it kind of lacks in a lot of the other adaptations um you know it's still horrible I mean she still ultimately dies it's it's you know that woman in the refrigerator trope that's really cringy and outdated another episode of yikes (laughs) but um I wonder if that's I wonder if that's also reflective of the fact that she was a bigger star than people that played those roles tended to be before her and therefore she was given a little more meat on the bone. Yeah. I mean, that that's, yeah, that's an interesting, that's, I mean, I can definitely see that. I mean, it, it's the, like the only, you know, female character in these Hyde adaptations that at least has a little bit of, like I said, agency, a little bit of like, she fights back or she isn't just some stock character to, to be killed in the final act i mean so when she dies it's it actually is um pretty painful the the, the 31 version you know you get to like the mary hopkins uh character but but again it, it's just I will defend a little bit of the the 41 version because like I said it it kind of at least tries to give her more of a more of of a arc I guess instead of just um being a victim. Hmm, interesting. I'll definitely have to go see that. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I didn't know about that one. Yeah, I mean it, um I I like the 31 version better, although um there's pieces of of the 41 version I think is superior and and that's one of them is like the, her character is, is so much more interesting, but there's also kind of like this dream sequence that I thought was really interesting. Um, I'm kind of actually amazed that it got past censors. Jekyll's having like this, I, I guess it's like he's transforming. So he's having like these hallucinations. And one of his like fever dream imaginations is him driving this horse and, and carriage. And then the horses turn into Lana Turner and Igor Bergman and he's whipping them. And, and, and it's so, sh- I mean, like I still watch it and, and think it's shocking. Mm-hmm. You know, again, what does that say? Um, 
I, I think that it's supposed to be shocking. Like, I don't think it's necessarily, like Chris, like you said, it's not like an endorsement from the movie necessarily oh, right. that that's a good thing. Um, obviously, it was meant to be a, a huge metaphor, but it, it's it's really interesting. And, and it's still a scene where I, I always am taken aback, even though I've seen it like a few times. I think that's so interesting. And now I, now I have to watch it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, like I said, there's things that I I like about it. There's things I don't like about it. Um, like some of it's kind of ridiculous. Like the the Hyde character, um, Spencer Tracy's Jekyll and Hyde, and they don't really do much makeup difference. So <laughs> we're supposed to not be able to tell that it's not Spencer Tracy the entire time. But you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, it has its moments. It, it, it's it's much of a bigger budget, like slicker adaptation than the thirty one version but yeah it's it's really interesting with um how it kind of tries to tap into um that repressed victorian you know thing with you know how they deal with um the women characters that they're not they're a little more fleshed out i guess in this version which i like cool yeah are there any other sort of themes that we've, we've talked about a whole bunch of stuff and uh absolutely loving it are there any other things that that any of you really kind of had uh about either of of the movie adaptations, any of them, or or the original material that we haven't gotten to? The only thing I would mention, and I, I brought it up just very briefly at the very beginning, was the idea of really the Jekyll and mythos, a uh, Jekyll and Hyde mythos, being a way of sort of being a thumb in the uh, thumbing the nose at the church in some ways. Um, and I feel like that has in in two ways: one, in portraying quote unquote depraved activities that the church would be uncomfortable by. Um, but at the same time, also giving the world an explanation, and even though we know it's an exaggerated one, saying that there is a scientific basis for the idea of uh, the inherent evil or darkness within a person as not being able to be explained by simple morality, especially spiritual morality, mm-hmm. I think it's a really ballsy story. I don't know if that was um, Stevenson's intent in writing it, but I think it's a it's a powerful statement. Uh, you know, as someone who is both a devout believer and also someone who hates organized religion, uh, I'm a man of uh, many facets. Uh, I, I love something that questions the system that it comes from, because this framework of this story, the idea of having this evil inside of that you the, you can't control does almost have like an epic spiritual battle dimension to it. But it's, it completely eschews any sort of supernatural explanation of it, you know, and so it, it removes it removes your ability to blame something other than yourself for a problem and Therefore, it is saying very humanistically that you are the cause of the issue here. You don't get to, you know, this is um, this is perhaps not the time to talk about it, but there was recently something in the news with someone who went out and killed a bunch of people. And what we're finding out is that a lot of teachings from the religion that he was a part of probably led to uh, the reason that he ended up doing it. Uh, the things that he was taught, the way that he ended up looking at other people as a result of what he was taught ended up being Uh, the reason that he probably did it. And I think there will be people that will say um, that to some degree that's someone else's fault, someone else to blame. And and while while I do agree that people can be radicalized, I also believe in personal responsibility. And and I feel like this is an interesting way of taking away that, you know, you hear it all the time with um, religious story, you know, where the devil made me do it, or there's an evil that's uh, stalking me or whatever. Like there's a way of just 
externalizing your worst tendencies and making them someone else's fault. And this franchise, this concept, this mythology has really effectively sort of shattered that myth where like you have to own this, you know? Right, we're like at the end of the day, it is you making these choices. I do think that that's interesting how it does kind of have interesting implications for like in the West, like Christian faith, you know? Because, yeah, like there's there's this traditional explanation like, well, the devil made me do it. Or in earlier periods, like, oh, well, this guy cheated on his wife. The woman's a witch. She's consorting with the devil. She's mm-hmm. bringing Satan into the community. Like, like traditional, like witchcraft fueling demonization where men would take no fault of their own for the, the things that they're doing. And they'd externalize onto, you know, the devil's influence or all these other factors but Jekyll and Hyde seems to posit that like, no, it's you. Mm-hmm. It's you, man. Like it's not the, 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 the forefront of your personality, but it is kind of like bringing early like psychological science into it almost where it's like, no, it's a part of your self, your personality, your, you could say soul, I guess, um, depending yeah. on if you want to go metaphysical at all, how you interpret the self. Yeah. At the very least, what it's saying is you may not, uh, you may not like it and you may not know how to uh, to deal with it, but it is your, you got to do something like you don't get to just say someone other than me is at fault. And therefore I absolve myself and wipe my hands of it. You know, yeah, right. I think that's really interesting. Like I, I really appreciate that um, bringing that perspective because I definitely had a different, uh, I felt in a, a different connection um of the church and the role of Christianity in these stories in that the, there were so many times that in uh, two faces, especially um, maybe because I was more awake when I was watching that one, but (laughs) um, there were, there was a lot of uh, purity and innocence and images of, of those sorts of themes juxtaposed against Jekyll and Hyde um, Jekyll specifically. And to me, it felt like this idea that you have this internal nature that you are responsible for, that you cannot blame on anything external, but that is why you are inherently evil and you must repent. Like that, I don't know, that's just like where my brain brought the church into this story. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's even a line in one of them, right? Where he says something about, you know, this is what happens when you mess with God's you know, plan or like his design or something like that. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So in a way, like the, yeah. um, the movie or at least the character, at least for me taking responsibility for himself and, you know, sort of, um, I, I feel like it, that's the church reverse, like basically trying to get the blame off of them by saying, no, 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 it's his fault because he did this. Right. The rest of us, exactly. the rest yeah. of us, we all have these right. terrible thoughts, but we keep them tamped down and we never tell anybody he acted on them. So he's evil, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I do feel like it does kind of speak to, in a sense that old that that traditional belief in like original sin and the fallen mm-hmm. self you have um you know you you would have i swear you would have had this divinity you were connected to but then like your ancestors you know x thousand years ago ate some fruit and now that divinity is ripped away from you and it's your fault you're bad you suck god should kill you but he didn't because he killed himself instead and you're at the basic core of your being, you're sinful. And that's like central. And to... you have a period now. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And also, <laughs> you know what? Screw snakes. They don't get legs anymore. Fuck them. Like, <laughs> like they had one job. 
They ruined everything, ripped the legs off. We do know they have a second job now. They can be used to kill people when you lock them in a room. To, to kill Christopher Lee, yeah. Exactly. Because you know what? We now have to work, and so do snakes, man. Like... Yeah, no more free rides. Exactly. Uh... Um, I will say what, what's really interesting is in the 31 and 41 version, probably more so um, the latter, they actually discuss this like religious aspect of the material where, you know, right, right from jump, people are telling um, Jekyll, it's blasphemous. You're going against nature. You're going against God. Um, the 41 version actually starts like the whole movie starts at a church. And this guy um, starts like heckling the preacher and, you know, the wife's like, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, he had like a brain injury and now he's like, he's like this and you know like jekyll wants to like basically use him as a a human guinea pig um so it's really interesting how you know especially in those early versions where it's it very much kind of hammers home this um religious aspect and one question i wanted to throw out to you guys was do you think that this material is kind of like inherently nihilistic in the sense that you know, we're all kind of capable of these horrible things that no matter how prim and proper or nice we are, you know, do you think that the material is really saying that, you know, we're all just animals like this? That's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, we could weigh in on the fact that I would argue, I haven't seen them all, but I would probably say 95% of the Jekyll and Hyde stories end with one of the two personalities having to die in order for the other to continue living. So I, I guess I would have to say it's inherently sort of nihilistic in that we're literally saying that some part of you must die in order for for life to be able to go on, you know, for everybody else. So, I yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. But I, I would certainly say that I, I would also not be surprised to find that it was probably 50-50 throughout history of who wins in each of these duels, you know, whether it's uh, Jekyll that gets to survive or whether it's Hyde that ultimately survives or whether we get that sense like I guess it was is it two faces where we think Hyde has taken over and then we see Jekyll still sort of peeking yeah. out because you can't ever quite fully get rid of him like at the end yeah yeah because it's kind of like the shadow self you know like you it's a part of your psyche and it also I mean I would say that like aspects of it in the normally functioning individual exist for a reason we have all these socialized mores that prevent us from doing all sorts of things that might actually be in our interest and then our id sometimes acts out in a normal functioning person in ways that can be constructive and and someone whose shadow side is sociopathic you don't want that id ever coming out but for your day-to-day people like like if i were like completely my id I wouldn't do violence to anybody. And I'm sure that's the case for most people, you know? Yeah. And I I would say I'm uh, inherently nihilistic. So I'm not sure I can see things in another way. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. So in other words, it absolutely is nihilistic because I wouldn't recognize it otherwise. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, well. But yeah, I mean, I feel like that the material and a lot of the movie versions are very much like we all kind of suck as people because we, you know, all have these kind of baser urges that we thankfully stamp down. But yeah, I mean, it's so fascinating. And that's why I kind of think that, um, you know, this story... um, you know, it is, it's, 
survive so long because there's so many interesting ways to interpret, reinterpret, pick apart, um, just because it, it is such a provocative and interesting theme. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I actually think that's the perfect note to kind of uh, conclude on because I know, Chris, that you have to to go soon. But I'm about to transform. Absolutely. Hey, man, you know, you you drink the serum when you're thirsty. You got to do what you got to do. But I I do want to give everyone a chance to, um, well, first of all, to say uh, thank you so much, Chris, for the episode idea and for stopping by. Uh, It was great having you on. I loved coming on. I wasn't even sure if this counted as a creature enough to talk about, but apparently we found enough to discuss. So I'm glad. Totally does. Absolutely does. Um, I have, a, as as I say repeatedly, I have a much wider notion of what a monster is than than some might. And I think this definitely counts. Um, uh, and thank you both, uh, Mike and Luna, for for being on. Uh, is awesome. Absolutely. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having, having us. And just uh, while, while we still have you, Chris... Um, would you uh, like to say how the listeners at home can find you? And is there anything that you're working on you'd like to pitch? Oh, sure. Um, well, Twitter's pretty much the only social media I'm on. So you can find me there at CK Vanderkay. My last name is Vanderkay. And it's spelled like it sounds, except for at the end, it's K-A-A-Y. So two A's. Um, but yeah, so CK Vanderkay on Twitter. And then if you go and you just look my name up at Amazon, you will find several books that I've written. I've written several, I've written two or three books about the history and philosophy of horror and science fiction film. I've written a couple of fiction books, uh, one I'm particularly proud of that I co-wrote with uh, Kathleen Fernandez, my wife, called Life After Death, which is basically a story about, you know, what happens when we fix the zombie apocalypse and everybody has to go back to living their lives normally, even though everyone's basically an open wound of trauma and PTSD. Um, And then I wrote a fun coffee table book, if you're not looking for something so dour as Life After Death, called Spoiler Alert. And it's basically like an infographic book that's, uh, it's a fun template for how to write really obvious cliched plots for the most obvious tool. What is it? 30 or four? I think it's 40 um, popular Hollywood genres. <laughs> so romantic comedy, zombie movie, you know, like it's, it's basically you've got your three or four page template for everything you need to write the most cliched version of those genres. Perfect. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing that. Absolutely. It's been a delight. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, it was oh, great. Absolutely. It was great uh, talking to you. Mike and Luna, how can other than here from time to time, where can the audience at home find what you guys got going on? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter as well uh, at strange cinema 65. Um, and uh, as you mentioned on the outset, um, I'm at, uh, I have a home video um, review site uh, called videoaddict.com, And um, yeah, it's great. We, um, I do a lot of, um, obviously home video reviews, but, um, I also do like some really fun things like interviews, um, that are pretty exclusive to the site and other fun things. And, um, yeah, I also have, um, the ultimate guide to strange cinema, which is my book. Um, it's a film guide to some of the weirdest, strangest movies. Um, not only just horror, but, um, of all genres and, you know, that also has um, some pretty fun interviews and some things that are um, make it a little more interesting than just a film guide. It's chock full of like trivia and, and some pretty cool information. So you can check that out on uh, Amazon. Very cool. Uh, Luna, what about you? Uh, so you can find me on, uh, in, I guess, I don't know. You can find me on Twitter <laughs> um, at Luna underscore Minwi. That's uh, M-I-N-U-I-T. 
And honestly, like I'm on Instagram. I haven't really posted on there very often, but you can find me there as well or on TikTok, all the same username. Um, I don't have much to plug right now because I am a performing artist and this is a pandemic. Um, So just check my social media for any time. There will be something new. (laughs) That is fair. (laughs) <laughs> like the, world, the entire world has been shut down for a year. Yeah. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of record human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization. The need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. (laughs) 